0: I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back to another week of America on Trial, your one-stop shop for all of your bite-sized, easily digestible legal news as it pertains to the 2024 presidential election. And for that matter, all the legal news affecting the country at large. We've got another super busy, jam-packed week in store for you on America on Trial. So without further ado, let's hop right into Around the Horn. The South Carolina presidential primary was This past Saturday, Donald Trump defeated Nikki Haley by 20 points or so. This is not a political analysis podcast per se. You have plenty of other places to go get your political analysis if you want to. So I say all that as context just to set the scene when it comes to the calendar of the primaries and the legal aspects of what is going on there. We have the Michigan presidential primary this Tuesday evening. And then Super Tuesday, which is just a veritable BV of states is coming up on March fifth, one week from this Tuesday. So all that is context to say that, as a reminder, we are still waiting to hear from the u s. Supreme Court when it comes to the ruling in the case of Trump versus Anderson, the appeal from Colorado, when it comes to the question, when it comes to the question of Fourteenth Amendment Section Three insurrection clause. And ballot access for the foreign president of the United States. Looking at my legal calendar right now, some are estimating that the case, the ruling in Trump versus Anderson, could come down this week. Probably towards the end of this week, Friday, on my legal calendar, this Friday, March 1st, is what I have highlighted here for an estimate for when that opinion might come down. There's no way of knowing. This is an infamous guessing game. There's just really no way of knowing in advance when the Justice will choose to release a given opinion on a given time, but it really does seem like, I, I know I've said this for a while, it really does seem like this is coming sooner rather than later at this point, because again, we've now had the early voting states, we've had Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, we're about to have Michigan, surely they're going to want to get this ruling in before the Super Tuesday states vote a week from this Tuesday, especially given Again, looking back to the legal calendar here, we're expecting a decision this Wednesday, February 28th, from a state circuit court out in Illinois when it comes to this state circuit court's own decision pertaining to the 14th Amendment Section 3 status of Donald Trump there in the land of Lincoln in Illinois and whether he can qualify. So you have to think that the Supreme Court is going to want to get their ruling in that will issue this sprawling singular result where all the states are going to be bound by it in fact that is probably one of the leading reasons why i think john roberts and probably elena kagan and maybe even katanji brown jackson based on her comments or argument that's why i think that this opinion is going to come down besides the questions that were asked in our argument which were deeply skeptical and deeply hostile towards the state of colorado which is trying to kick him off the ballot but besides that The number one reason why I feel really good about this case from Donald Trump's perspective is because John Roberts, if he cares about one thing, it is on getting the judiciary out and on having very simple rules in place, or at least very simple rules that John Roberts thinks are very simple rules. That's not always necessarily the case. But in this particular instance right here— This is exactly the kind of argument that someone like the Chief Justice John Roberts is is going to buy, which is that you issue a single ruling. That says, no, he is not banned from the ballot because on the one hand, it's not self-executing and that you need a direct congressional legislation to implement this constitutional provision. Oh, on the other hand, he's not, the president is not a, quote, officer of the United States because officer of the United States, as the framers of the Constitution meant it, is a term of art that refers to people who are appointed, not those who are elected for office like a president is. And you could also go down the rabbit hole of whether January 6th was an insurrection. By the way, it's not. So you, I mean, there are plenty of reasons that this case is frivolous on its face, but above all, I think that the sheer pragmatism and practical nature, the impractical nature of having this sprawling patchwork system where state court judges, state administrators, dog catchers, who the heck knows what else, are going to to decide all throughout the country in an ad hoc patchwork basis that Trump is or is not disqualified because he committed insurrection. I mean, who knows where that train goes from there? That's the kind of argument that John Roberts is going to buy. I really, really would be surprised at this point if this opinion does not come down later this week. It's going to come out in the president's favor. Only question is whether it's going to be 8-1 to one or 9-0. to zero. A lot of pretrial filings are going to the docket this week. In the lesser disgust of Jack Smith's two federal prosecutions, the classified documents retention case at Mar-a-Lago here in the state of Florida, the courtroom of Judge Aileen Cannon, virtually every day this week, there's some deadline pertaining to to conference or requests for sealing and redacting anything in the pretrial motions. All of this is standard. All of this is standard operating procedure. There's a lot of paperwork and a lot of filings in particular in this case for the very simple and straightforward reason that classified documents are involved. And there are some special statutes involved that Try to bounce out due process concerns with Sixth Amendment Confrontation Clause concerns. That's your constitutional right to face someone who is accusing you in a criminal trial. So there's a lot when it comes to classified documents. Obviously, we don't want those things to be exposed to the world willy-nilly. We need to make sure the evidence is heard, and we need to make sure that the jury pool is equipped. Perhaps they'll even be sequestered. There's, there's a lot that goes on there pre-trial, but as of now, that trial is is still set to begin on May 20th, so just under three months from now. One of the reasons why that case does not really get the attention that the others get is because it's going to be a fairly diverse jury pool in, in this particular jurisdiction in southern Florida. It's not south Florida, per se. It's not Miami-Ford, Lauderdale area. It's a little further north of that, but that's actually a good thing for Donald Trump, from his perspective, because the specific jurisdiction where Judge Cannon's courtroom is, you're very unlikely, I think, to get a unanimously anti-Trump jury, the likes of which you're going to find in the Alvin Bragg case in New York City or in Jack Smith's case in Washington, D.C., if it if it ultimately gets to that, ditto Fannie Willis in Georgia. That's one of the reasons why it's not getting as much attention, but it also doesn't really implicate the sexy, you know, MSNBC, CNN, liberal regime pull your hair out storylines and headlines, which is the 2020 election. That's that's where the regime, so to speak, the Merrick Garland, Jack Smith, Joe Biden apparatus, the Democrat media complex, those are the case. Those are the cases where they are really, really focused. Is the Jack Smith case in DC and the and the Georgia case because those are the cases that involve, as Fonnie Willis, not so aptly put it, on the witness stand in Fulton County a week and a half ago. Those are the guys who tried to steal an election, right? Isn't that what she said? I mean, that's the stuff that these people care about. It's not so much the classified documents case at Mar-a-Lago. Some other stuff going on when it comes to this outrageous fraud ruling in the New York City courtroom of Justice Arthur Ngoron there. On Friday, the $454 million judgment that Ngoron put on Trump officially took effect. So you might be scratching your head saying, wow, how did it get to four hundred and fifty four? I thought it was... About a hundred million dollars less than that, and and sure, sure enough, it was. It was three hundred fifty-five million dollars, and it got up to four hundred fifty-four, basically through interest payments, through backdated interest payments. So it ends up, it, it, it ends up being four hundred fifty-four million. It's about three fifty-five in base plus ninety-nine million in interest payments. I, I, absolutely insane stuff. We've discussed. The substantive nature of this case, the frivolous nature of it on this show, the fact that there are no victims, that these are sophisticated financial counterparties who were, quote-unquote, taken advantage of. Note that there was really no one who was taken advantage of. There were actually no losers in this case there. It's all just a total bunch of hogwash. But for purposes of today's show, the only thing that you need to know is that that ruling, that judgment, actually went into effect on Friday. So Trump's going to have to come up with some cash here. He's going to have to come up with some cash fairly quickly because he also has that $83.3 million verdict, which he's going to appeal it. But he's going to have that $83.3 million verdict in the E. Carroll defamation case as well. So how is he going to get all this money? I, I, I mean, that really is the big question there. He's going to have to come up with the money quickly and... Who knows what that would entail? I mean, in theory, that could require selling assets, that could require liquidating assets, selling golf courses, building, who knows? Or on the other hand, this is by far the more likely of the two scenarios, he's going to have to post a bond. He's going to have to get a bond at this point, and he's going to have to get someone who's going to be willing to to give him a bond, a a bond of, of a very large number, which is essentially just an IOU. And... Look, I mean, maybe he'll be able to do it. He probably will, if I had to guess. And e- easier said than done when we're talking tens, hundreds of millions of dollars in posting a bond. But, you know, Trump's going to have a decent shot here on appeal in, in in the fraud trial as well. It's just so nuts. It's just so viscerally shocking to the conscience, you might say that you have to think that the state appeals courts there in New York State would tend to be a sl- slightly more rational than the trial courts there. You have to think that this thing could end up working out for Trump. But for now, all you need to know as it pertains to today is that that judgment did actually go into formal effect on Friday. So it's now just going to be a question as to how he ponies up and actually gets some of this money moving forward. We will have more information on that presumably at some point this week. Subscribe, download now the truth. Today's deep dive takes us back to, you know, you guessed it, we're going back to Fulton County, Georgia. That's where we're going back for today's deep dive. So there is lots and lots of drama continuing there in Fulton County, Georgia. There's going to be another hearing this Friday in the courtroom of Judge Scott McAfee on these motions to disqualify Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade, could make for some explosive hearings this Friday. We very much look forward to those hearings here on America on Trial back in the courtroom of Judge Scott McAfee. There, there was some pretty bombshell revelations, actually, on Friday when it, when it comes to the Fulton County case in Georgia. So th- there was an analysis of Nathan Wade's cell phone data that was submitted to the court in a formal court filing. This was submitted by Donald Trump's lawyers on, on Friday morning there. Basically what happened was, according to this legal filing, Trump's lawyers hired a an outside investigator, a man by the name of Charles Middlestadt. So Charles Middlestad was an investigator working here for Trump's lawyers, Steve Sato and Jennifer Litto, Little. And as part of his investigation, Charles Middlestad, who's the cell phone metadata investigator, he, and I'm, I'm getting my information here from National Review, Middlestadt said that he requested Nathan Wade's cell phone data from most of the year 2021 from AT&T's Subpoena Compliance Center. And then he used a geolocation tool called CellHawk to analyze the data that he received. Here is the key part. So let me just pause here and make sure we're all on the same page. Recall that this investigation into Donald Trump's quote-unquote attempts to overturn the election in Fulton County, Georgia, or Georgia more generally. Fonnie Wells began this investigation in November of 2021. She hired Nathan Wade the following year to be a special prosecutor in the case in 2022 because of his expertise or specialty in charging high-profile racketeering cases under the state's sprawling RICO statute. Now, those two illicit lovers have told us over and over again that they were not shacking up, that they were not... Doing the deed, so to speak, until after Fani had went ahead and tapped Nathan. But oh, wouldn't you know it? That at that bombshell hearing that we had a week and a half, two weeks ago or so, we actually then heard from when one of Fani Willis's former coworkers in the Fulton County DA's office, one of her self-proclaimed "quote unquote" good friends, who said that oh no, they actually started shacking up in 2019. And we've seen some of these back and forth questions in these pre-trial hearings where Trump defended Michael Ro- Trump co-defended Michael Roman. Is trying to disqualify Fani and Nathan. We we've seen this come up. The question as to when exactly did they start their romantic dealings. So all that is context. Then you know that you have the 2021 start date for the Fani investigation. She hires him in 2022. Okay. So Middlestack, going back to him, he's the investigator who's doing this data analysis on behalf of Trump's lawyers. He said that he requested Wade's cell phone data and then he generated this report and the report that he found concluded that Fani Willis and Nathan Wade had exchanged more than 2000 voice calls and 12000 text messages wow from just from January through November in the year 2021 so all of that is before Fani even opened this formal investigation into Donald Trump and his co-defendants there in the Georgia case, according to Middlestadt, quote: "There was a prevalence of calls made in the evening hours." The analysis, quote, revealed a minimum of thirty-five occasions when Nathan Wade's phone connected for an extended period to either the towers in closest proximity to Willis's condo, and there are some da- some damning anecdotal. Data points here, too, in this report from Middlestad, who, again, is the investigator working on behalf or retained by Trump's counsel here in the Georgia case. So on September 11th, 2021, this is well before Willis hired Wade to be a special prosecutor, Wade's phone, Nathan Wade's phone, arrived at the closest geofence, the closest geolocator signal transmitter to Fonnie Willis's condo, and he arrived there at 10.45 p.m. and he remained there until 3.28 in the morning, at which point the phone returned to the area East Cobb where Nathan Wade lived. And there's, there are numerous other examples like this here. This looks really bad. That's the conclusion, is that this looks really, really, really bad. At this point, you simply have to conclude that there is a greater likelihood in Fulton County, Georgia, that Fonnie Willis and perhaps Nathan Wade end up going to jail than Donald Trump and his co-defendants. That is the simple, ineluctable reality of what we are currently facing in Fulton County, is that we are dealing with two absolute scumbag human beings, and Fonnie Wills and Nathan Wade, two absolutely absurd people, someone in Fonnie Wills, who, by the way, sounds dumber than dumb, who literally didn't know what continent the country of Belize was when she was on the witness stand a week and a half ago here. You're dealing with unserious, deeply unethical people. You're dealing with people who are in it just to get their political enemy, and you're dealing with people here who happen to be shacking up, and oh, by the way, it seems like they have lied. That's why they might be going to jail, folks. Look, they have lied. If if this is verified, and look, they, they we'll see what happens in McAfee's courtroom there in Georgia this Friday. Maybe we'll get some more witness stand drama. I mean, <laughs> look, if you're Fonnie Willis' lawyer, I, I don't know how the heck you think it will be good for your client to take the stand here in this situation, but- Maybe we'll, we'll get some more dramatic testimony this Friday as well. But the point is, it, it seems like Trump's lawyers did a real solid here by hiring this outside cell phone metadata investigator, this guy Charles Middlestad. The this, this stuff that he has concluded here is, is really, really quite damning. And of course, already, Fonnie Wills and Nathan Wade are denying it. They're saying this, they're saying that, and and we'll, we'll, we'll get to hear from them a little later. But... If this is true, then they have perjured themselves because they said that their affair did not start until 2022, and if this is true, then we now know that that is a lie. That's really bad. You can't perjure yourself. You cannot perjure yourself. We, or I should say Republicans, Republicans impeached, stop, stop, stop. Republicans impeached Bill Clinton in the late 1990s over perjury. Bill Clinton ended up losing His law license over that. A former president of the United States ended up losing his law license over perjury. Perjury is a big deal. So if Bonnie Wells and Nathan Wade perjured themselves, if they perjured themselves by saying that they weren't shackled up until 2022, but they actually were in, in 2021 before this investigation even started, then they're out. They are out of this investigation. Judge Scott McAfee will definitely rule that way if, the, if this is confirmed, I think. And the only question then is whether those two end up going to jail. It's looking really, really good for Donald Trump and his co-defendants there in Georgia. This was the case that so many of us thought would be the most dangerous one for Trump. It's the one where a president cannot pardon himself because it's a state crime. It's the one where you have the governor, Brian Kemp, the secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger, who are Republicans who are not particularly favorable towards Trump. You have... So much going there that really seemed like it was going to be playing out in favor of the prosecution, in favor of the anti-Trump side. It's all falling apart. At this point, it is all just totally falling apart and going to crap, so to speak. Trump is looking, yet again, like a very, very lucky man in the state of Georgia. But kudos, kudos also to his lawyers for this excellent, exceptional hire of this cell phone metadata analyst, Middlestad. That seems like that is paying real dividends right now. We'll have more information on that, hopefully, later in the week. But for now, yet again, Trump and his co-defendants are looking quite good in the peach state of Georgia.